0: Beloved, I realized why I was confused a bit earlier regarding the country of origin of Dr. Andrew Snelling. It's Australia. Uh, But I had New Zealand on my brain because of this opening uh, story that I have. I remember my good friend Rick Holland, uh, we served together in Southern California and I remember one time there he went to New Zealand to a minister to churches and one of the occasions he had there was he was going to minister and teach at a marriage conference that was put on by one of the churches in New Zealand and to his surprise when he got there they had a brochure that they passed out to the community and it had a picture of him his name and then the surprise factor was underneath his name they had in quotes the love doctor. I remember Rick saying I never really looked at myself that way before Uh, I mean it was a marriage conference so I guess I understand the marketing uh, shtick or spin behind that Uh, with that in mind please beloved open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13 we turn to a book that understands the matters of life, understands the world in which we live. Certainly the entire Bible does. Uh, certainly this magnificent sermonic epistle of Hebrews does. God inspired the writers of Scripture to relate the dense, heavy, massive doctrines of God grace and teaching all throughout scripture to the matters and affairs of daily life to practical matters and in this letter after being massively doctrinal the author turns his attention to become eminently personal and practical even as I just described this letter just now as a sermonic epistle and as we've been going through it, you've heard me say that before. Well, in some ways, we could kind of think, if you want an outline of the book, chapters 1 through 12 is the sermonic epistle part. And then chapter 13 now is the sermonic epistle In other words, in this final chapter, this is where the author closes this letter with the normative way in which the writers of letters would back in those times. You can even think this is somewhat similar to the way the Apostle Paul closes out his letters. So this letter, this sermonic epistle is given by God through the author to us. And it reminds us that... He is writing, the author, God, is writing to very real people in very real circumstances. The original audience was a group of Jewish believers, and they're being tempted. They were facing the temptation to leave Christ and to go back to their man-made religious system. They're being tempted to go away from the invisible promise of God to the city that they can't see with their natural eyes to the promises and the belief that must be seen with eyes of faith and go back to things that they can see and touch something tangible and visible something ceremonial and palpable as they had in their religious systems. Now, I understand here, there's probably only a very small minority of us that are doubly blessed to be Jewish believers. Most of the audience here are Gentile believers. But beloved, in the very same way, there are always many manners of pressures of life that seek to pull you and me away from Christ. Our passage this morning is verses one through six, but let me draw your attention just for a moment uh, to the last verse in chapter 12 and the beginning verse here in chapter 1 uh, the last verse verse 29 of chapter 12 you will read for our god is a consuming fire and then in verse 1 let love of the brethren continue that's quite a transition That's quite a move from the thick and heavy doctrine. What he does here is after he lays that foundation of tremendous doctrine, the author wraps up with a practical punch on love. What he is doing here in the rest of this chapter and certainly in these first six verses is you'll remember at even the beginning of chapter 12, God exhorts you and me to run the race with endurance. And what God does here is he gives us guidelines as to how we are to run that race. He gives us markers so that we stay in our lane. Beloved, listen as I read Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 6. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Again, these are Guidelines for you and me to live the Christian life. These are markers. Uh, This is even an outflow. This is instruction as to how we can be obedient even if we go back one more verse in chapter 12. Look at the end of verse 28 in chapter 12. There we are told by which, this kind of heart gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service. Acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And beloved, what God is doing is here now in these first six verses, he's telling us precisely how you and I can offer to God acceptable service and acceptable worship. And what he does is he gives us three standing commands to love. He tells you and me to love our brother in verses 1 through 3. He tells us to love our spouse in verse 4. And then in verses 5 and 6, he tells us to love our Savior. Because what the author is doing, what God is doing for you and me, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is the difference, the distinction between hearing and learning, between merely hearing and truly learning. This is the difference between merely saying and doing, the difference between a mere professed faith and a true possessed faith. God here, the author, puts shoes on his doctrine. He makes this great doctrine that we've had all the way up to this point practical. And that you and I would know how to run the race of true religion. That's the sermon title, even this morning: How to Run the Race of True Religion, to Religion. The kind of true religion, for example, that James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote of back in James 1:27, when he talks about pure and undefiled religion in sight of our God and Father. Because true holiness marks true religion. And what the author does here again is he lets us know what that looks like uh, because what we do helps define who we are. So all that to say, let's unpack and first look at this first command of standing command of love, namely love your brother. And this recipe for a true holy life, this recipe for a successful running of the race begins and starts with sacrificial love. Look at the text, verse 1. Let love of the brethren continue. Love of the brethren. The Greek word is Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Philos plus Adelphos. Love of the brother. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Kensington neighborhood notwithstanding. This exhortation of loving your brother is given all through especially the new, well really given through the new testament John 13 uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 Romans chapter 12 1 Peter chapter 1 and here in Hebrews 13 at the end where maybe the when I talk about the sermonic epistle maybe the first 12 chapters were an actual sermon that he preached and perhaps chapter 13 is the author of this sermon the author of this letter closing out with this letter-like reading. And what he is doing here is he is telling us that at the very heartbeat of what biblical Christianity looks like, at the very soul of esteeming Jesus Christ as the infinitely superior mediator of the new covenant, as the perfect and completely sufficient high priest is to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And We remember that for this group of, this original audience of Jewish believers, that as we make this transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, in the Old Covenant, even as God spells it out in the Old Testament, there was a sharp distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. There was always a place for Gentiles to be grafted into the family of god into the nation of israel but there was a sharp distinction between the two and so for this group of jewish believers and even for you and me today we may ask any one of us may ask at some point the reasonable question who is my brother in christ who is my sister and the answer is anyone who is in christ you see it's the opposite it's our unifying factor in christ is not that we came from the same social background. It's not that we like the same kind of music or that we have the same hobbies or same interests. It's not economical, it's not social, it's not cultural. It's certainly not racial. There's one race. It's not a situation where, okay, Jews sit over here and Gentiles sit over here. Uh, Romans sit up front and the barbarians sit in the back. We'll have free men over here and slaves over there. No, the picture in Hebrews, the picture in Ephesians, the picture in all of the New Testament is we are all together part of the body of Christ. We are all in the family of God. We are all bricks in the temple of God that Jesus Christ is building. You see, our unifying factor is we all come from the same place and we are all saved by the same grace. We all come from the same place of sinful rebellion, of helplessness and hopelessness outside of the forgiveness of Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or freeman. And We are saved by the same grace, the same gift of salvation is at the heart of this. And even the grammar here, what he's saying is keep on on a regular basis. It's a standing command from God. Keep on loving your brother in Christ, your brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the... Elements, I've mentioned this before, I love about Zach's strongman competitions is that unique to different athletic endeavors I've watched or been part of myself is everybody roots for everybody else. Uh, When Zach is lifting or, you know, lifting up the pianos filled with molten lava and doing whatever they do in the strongman, all the people he's competing against are cheering him on. Then when his competition does, he cheers them on. You see, that's very different, the kind of Greco-Roman races that was... The background of the exhortation back in chapter 12, it was each man for himself, each man for himself. But that's not the situation here. This is not every man for himself. This is every man for his brother, every woman for her sister. And even from this, we understand that each one of us, some more, some less, we have a competitive spirit. This is part, I would say, even of us being made in the image of God. And God can harness that competitive uh, spirit. And in fact, in one sense, we are commanded by God to outdo one another. And what's interesting, though, is unlike the athletic Greco-Roman world that the people would be thinking of, we are not seeking to outdo one another for our glory of self. Rather, we are seeking to outdo one another for honor and glory of another. In Romans 12, 10, God said through Paul, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Be devoted to one another in Philadelphia. And then watch this outdo one another in showing honor it's others oriented our focus always is on Christ first and foremost but at the human level at the horizontal level we think of others before ourselves so let the love of the brethren continue let it abide in you and the outcome is that God works so that the reconciled and the redeemed dwell together in unity and in purity and in harmony in his church. And if we are to be a loving people, if we are to be a caring people, a pure people, a content people, a submissive people, this has to be discovered and worked out and made manifest in the framework of the family of God. And I would tell you that this command here at the beginning, let love of the brethren continue, is the umbrella command over the ensuing ones. The center of gravity of verses 1 through 3 is the body of Christ, the church. The framework of even loving strangers, the framework of remembering prisoners and those who are ill-treated flow out of the framework of the family of Christ. For example, look at verse 2. He moves on, he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Hospitality, philo xenius, literally the love of aliens. It's the word philos again, the word of love, and xenos, strangers. He says, literally, let, or do not neglect to have love. Do not neglect the love of strangers. So in the original context, these strangers he's speaking of here are other believers. There's believers that you don't know. And the strangers that the author's talking about here would be believers, would be Christian men and women, many of whom had been driven out of their homes and even driven out of their occupations because of their stand for the truth, because of their faith in Christ. Uh, example of this is in 3 John, the third epistle of the Apostle John, when he's writing to Gaius, an elder man named Gaius in verse 5. John said, beloved, this is beloved Gaius, you're acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren and especially when they are strangers, when they are xenos. You see, the situation there was Gaius was welcoming these traveling pastors, evangelists, and missionaries, these Christians, into his home. He encouraged them. He supported them uh, so that they could go about their missionary labors and they could go about their way. You see, they had inns back then, but they didn't have Marriott and Hilton. They didn't even have Motel 6. And the inns where they could stay were places that were very dangerous and very immoral. So for the purpose of safety and security, and even for the purpose of purity, Christians would welcome into their homes other Christians, traveling Christians, that they didn't know. That's the context in the background here. And we will go on. It's the same dynamic with the prisoners and those ill-treated. So the context here, again, are believing men and women. There can be, and I will get to this, there can be an extended application to strangers, prisoners, and ill-treated who aren't part of the body of Christ under the guise and purpose of evangelism. But that's not the immediate context of this. But with the rest of verse 2, He continues, and he gives an interesting historical uh, reference. He says, look at the text, end of verse 2. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. He's hearkening back to the Old Testament examples of Abraham and Lot in Genesis 18 and 19, of Gideon and the parents of Samson in Judges 6 and 13. In all four cases, Abraham, Abraham, when he was sitting by the terabints of Mamre, had three men come to him. And there were two angels, and one of the men was a pre-incarnate appearance of the second member of the Trinity. And then the two angels went on from Abraham, went to Lot in Genesis chapter 19. Same thing, Gideon and the parents of Samson in Judges 6 and 13, in all four cases here, they received angelic beings, angels, or even pre-in- preincarnate appearances of the Christ, and they didn't know who they were, but they received them in. That's the example that he gives here. The bottom line, beloved, what God is trying to communicate here through this reference, is that service to man, your service, my service to man, or in their case, is service to angels, is as service to God. That's why, for example, Christ in the Olivet Discourse said in Matthew 25, verse 40, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it unto me. Sinclair Ferguson had this great statement by way of application, of taking this real in your life and my life here and now. He said, whenever we find ourselves attaching importance to possessions, background schooling, or accent as the basis of fellowship, then we are out of step with the example of Christ, and such wrongful attitudes need to be dealt with at the foot of the cross. Jesus said, another quote from the Olivet Discourse, end quote from Sinclair, now quote from Jesus. Uh, Matthew 25:35. I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger. I was a Xenos, and you invited me in, end quote. And finally, I'll wrap this up. I love what uh, Pastor Newell, Pastor Newell, who was also a commentator, great commentary on Hebrews, he said this about this dynamic. He said, An assembly of saints showing love to strangers will soon have plenty of strangers to love. I love that. If you've been here for a while, you'll know from my heart, from the elder's heart, really from the heart of our body, our focus was, is, and always will be on spiritual growth. We welcome numerical growth because it represents souls and represents ministry. And if there's any kind of numerical growth statement I've ever heard that I even might agree with, I love this. An assembly of saints showing love to strangers will soon have plenty of strangers to love. Beloved, I also want to make a comment on the word there that's used in the New American Standard Translation. It uses the word hospitality to strangers. Hospitality is an okay translation if we move beyond the kind of frothy 21st century mere understanding of hospitality. To really get a better understanding of what God's communicating here, we need to have a little walk through some of the etymology, some of the origin. The word hospitality does come from the Greek word xenos, stranger. It went from there into the Latin hospice, again meaning stranger. It went through the old French becoming hospital, which was talking about a hostel or shelter for the needy. And then it came into English so that we have two English words, hospitality and, good guess, hospital. So the idea where we tend to care for and heal the hurt, sick, wounded, and broken. That is a good understanding of the kind of hospitality that we read of here, that we are commanded by God here to show strangers. So we want to move beyond the frothy understanding of the hospital, or in light of last Sunday, beyond the airy nothingness kind of understanding of hospitality if you are here during uh, Joshua's sermon. We're so thankful, I'm so personally thankful for Uh, Josh uh, ministry of his minister of his casting his ministerially bread of excellence into the youth ministry at Santan Bible Church and the message as well, but now look at verse three. We move from strangers to prisoners. He says, "Remember the prisoners, as though in prison with them, as though you are there with them." We may remember, may understand that prisons in biblical time weren't places of free food and free entertainment. The context here again tells us that these are Christian men and women that are behind bars, that have lost their livelihood and even their freedom because of their testimony in Christ. It also comes from the previous appearance of prisoners back in chapter 10, verse 34, where you read there that the author tells the audience that they showed sympathy to the prisoners, to fellow believers. And even going back to another statement from Christ in the Olivet Discourse, he said, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So our ministry to strangers, to prisoners, is as though we were ministering to Christ. And then finally, at the end of the verse, look at the text and those who are ill-treated. Remember also those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. So strangers, prisoners, ill-treated. It's interesting, uh, the Greek word translated ill-treated here only appears two times in the New Testament here, and back in 11 verse 37. At, at the end of that Hall of Faith chapter. At the end of that great statement on godly men and women who demonstrated their faith and trust and belief in God and the promise of God, even though they couldn't see it with their visible eyes, you may remember in verse 37, he gives this kind of catch-all description of the suffering the believing men and women suffered in the Old Testament. verse 37, chapter 11, they were stoned, they were sawn in two. They were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. So again, the context here are believers. And he says, since you yourselves are also in the body, in the body of Christ. It's the same kind of thinking, the same kind of instruction and exhortation that Paul gave to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 12, 26, he says, If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. That is the dynamic. That is the demonstration of the love of the brethren that we're part of here. So, Again, the context is believers. As I mentioned, though, it is right and appropriate to make an extended application to those that are outside the body of Christ under the umbrella of evangelism. Strangers, prisoners, ill-treated. Beloved, if the church of God, if the biblical church of the biblical Jesus Christ doesn't step up and make a commitment to the cesspools of society, someone else will. And, I was thinking of this when I was, as I mentioned before, when I was in Baltimore this last weekend, before the 10-year anniversary celebration for Baltimore Bible Church began, I went to the Museum of the Bible with my brother George Lawson, Lance Quinn, Todd Murray, Jennifer Lawson. There other a couple other men and women as well. Uh, the Museum of the Bible in D.C., it's pretty new. I think it's like 10, 15 years old. One of the exhibits they had there was actually in the form of a literal cell. It was taken from, it wasn't literally taken, it was a picture of a ministry that has taken place at the Louisiana State Penitentiary. The Louisiana State Penitentiary is the largest maximum security prison in the United States. It's nicknamed Angola. It has previously been called the Alcatraz of the South because that's where the worst of the worst, the most violent of the violent are sent for primarily life sentences and executions. Eight out of every 10 inmates in the 6,000, 7,000 prison population are there on life sentences or awaiting execution. It's known for, or has been known for, violence, murder, and riots. But when a new warden came in in the mid to late 90s, Some Christians came and said, we want to reach into your your, uh, prison. We want to give people Bibles. We'd like to start Bible studies and the warden welcomed them in. Over time, God has done a great work all the way to the point that they have a Bible seminary in partnership with the New Orleans Baptist Seminary where prisoners, even lifetime prisoners with no hope for freedom, graduate. If you go to this cell In the Museum of the Bible, you have pictures of all these men of every language, tongue, tribe, every ethnicity, different ages with lifted countenances. You'll see a video of these men in their prison garb with robes and what do you call little beanies, little graduation beanies, uh, walking down during a graduation. Some even of these prisoners will graduate and be sent to other prisons with the permission of both as missionaries. Beloved, this is the power of the gospel. And even as we think back in chapter 12 here in Hebrews, remember this incredible, joyful assembly that we see worshiping Christ in heaven. How many of of people, of men and women, giving testimony at the throne of God of their salvation through the gospel message before the Lord and even before the myriad of angels they talked about? How many of those men and even women, as part of their testimony, will say, even in the heavens, that they heard the good news when they were in prison? It's a wonderful thing to think of. And by the way, our brother George Lawson has preached at Angola. Coming back to where we're at here, in the context of this fellowship of love, of love of the brethren, what a wonderful thing it is to have a heart like a hospital. So many examples. I think of the Palins, I think of the Paulsons. I could go on and on about men and women here to have this kind of heart. Beloved, may our fellowship be a hospital to these strangers, to the prisoners, to the ill-treated, to the believing ones, and even by way of evangelism to the unbelieving ones. And even in that light, uh, Bill Jewell, whom is one of the four Jewell men that will be affirming and recognizing a deacons at the end, the uh, leader of our local outreach, will be preaching next Sunday at Sacaton, the capital of the Gila Indian uh, reservation. Uh, go to Bill if you have a interest, perhaps, in ministering to the Indian community. So, love your brother. The second standing command of love from God that we see in verse 4 is love your spouse. Love your spouse. We remember, or it may be new to you, in Genesis chapter 2, days 1 through 3 were all incomplete. They were the void part of the formless and void. The heavens without lights were incomplete. The seas without sea animals were incomplete. The skies without birds and winged creatures were incomplete. The land was incomplete without animals and man. But Man without woman wasn't just incomplete. It was declared by God in Genesis 1, verse 28, as not good. He said it's not, excuse me, 2, verse 18. It's not good for the man to be alone. God's answer to that incompleteness, God's answer to that not good portion of his perfect creation, beloved, dear friend, was marriage. It was marriage. Look at verse 4 here in Hebrews 13 let marriage be held in honor among all in preciousness <laughs> the word translated as honor means precious it describes for example the precious stones in 1st corinthians 3 it describes the precious blood of jesus 1st peter 1 verse 19 the precious blood the honorable blood same word as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ that gives you an idea of the magnitude of this charge of this reminder to us as husbands wives even as single people wherever we're at in our stage in life to let marriage be held in honor because beloved God set the pattern at the beginning in the Garden of Eden, a union of two lives fused together into one flesh. An unbroken, lifelong joining together. A monogamous union of one man and one woman together for life. It's the same dynamic, the same teaching, the same command, the same blessing, the same reality that uh, Paul wrote to Timothy. Uh, 1 Timothy 4.3, Paul said, God has created marriage to be gratefully shared, watch this, to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Again, the first reference there is believers. Now, don't misunderstand me. We want unbelievers to get married rather than some of the other alternatives. But the first reference, the first context, the greatest joy is within the body of Christ because Of all the human institutions, of all the relationships, the most vital of all relationships is marriage. All the other institutions, hospitals, governments, schools are derivative of God placing man and woman together in the garden and fusing them together. That's why marriage is permanent. It's sacred. It's intimate. It's mutual. It's exclusive. And a Christian marriage, a Christian man and woman, husband and wife is one of the most clear and vivid living illustrations of the gospel that we have before us. So, beloved man, woman, husband, wife in Christ, give public visible honor to marriage and give private personal honor to marriage. And You need both. Both are necessary. If we are falling short of, if we're not giving private, personal honor to marriage, don't think, let us not think that we can be effective at all in terms of giving public, visible honor to marriage. But he continues on, look at the next part in verse four. He says, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Let it be unsoiled, unstained, unpolluted. Literally, let it remain undefiled. And beloved, this boils down to one central command, one central truth. Sex, sexual intimacy, belongs in marriage and nowhere else. And sexual intimacy is good and worthy of celebration, scripturally speaking. And there is no corruption of human affairs or institutions more vile or dangerous than the corruption of marriage. And we are even seeing that now. We are witnessing the disintegration of a nation because of the disintegration of marriage. And we lament that. We mourn over this. But, beloved, our hope and our confidence are secure. I I, I love Gilbert. I love Arizona. I love the United States of America. Our hope, security, and safety is not in Gilbert, not in Arizona, not in the United States of America. We do mourn over that. But our trust, our confidence, our hope is in God. And he has laid it out for us. Crystal clear from the very beginning. When marriage is degraded and debased into, even at best, a mere contract of convenience, that's an opportunity for the church to arise. Not merely with our professions about the honor and sanctity of marriage, but our demonstrations of the honor and sanctity of marriage by how we love our husbands and how we love our wives. And it affects our witness. How can we? Tell someone, how can we tell a man or woman to whom we are trying to share the good news that God will change your life if our life is not changed significantly, especially in this most important area? And that's why at the end of verse 4, you see God gives a solemn warning, a solemn warning to those with wandering affections and lustful hearts. Look at it. He says, For this is the reason why. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Fornicators, this is immorality outside the confines of marriage, of any stripe, but whether it's perverted, whether it's heterosexual, sinful relationship outside of marriage, and adulterers, this is immorality within marriage. Infidelity, unfaithfulness, a wandering affection and lustful heart within the confines of marriage. Now, the Apostle Paul talks about this when he wrote to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 6 9, he said, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor effeminate nor homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God. Beloved, dear friend, to violate these, to go outside your lane is the high road to misery. It's not the high road to happiness. It's not the high road to freedom. It's the high road to bondage. Bondage of the will. Bondage of the heart. And I, it's interesting. Uh, Newell. Whom I mentioned before. The pastor. The commentator. He said in 1947. If needed then. Newell wrote. How vastly more in these days. Hurrying on towards Sodom. End quote. Again. That was stated in 1947. It's like a fire. A fire in a fireplace is a wonderful thing. It gives warmth, peace, and calm. So also, sexual intimacy in a marriage is pure, holy, undefiled, and without pollution. But a fire outside the fireplace brings horrible destruction. It can be a raging blaze that can destroy an entire house. In the same way, immorality outside of marriage and adultery inside marriage leaves a Trail of burned out broken hearts, unwanted pregnancies, nasty diseases, and even a damaged capacity to fully enjoy the permanent blessing of marriage. That's why, and by the way, it's the same dynamic in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's why Solomon, using figurative language, but I think you'll get the point, said this by way of application. He said, Proverbs 5.15, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well, beloved, keep your marriage bed unpolluted. Stay in your lane within the God ordained, God designed, and God approved confines of holy matrimony. And beloved, I understand the wounds can be terrible, the betrayal, the hurt can be real. How can there be reconciliation? But beloved, the blood shed, the Blood of Christ shed at the cross cleanses, forgives, and can rebuild. No Christian relationship is beyond hope nor damage, beyond repair. There is always hope in Christ, even for torn and scarred lives. And with that backdrop, may a new era dawn. And understand this, beloved, understand this, dear friend, happiness and holiness is at the end of monogamy road. Now, I'll have a quick word here to singles. If God has not seen fit to place you in the confines of this honorable institution now or ever, remember it is infinitely better to stay and to walk in the ways of God, even outside of marriage, than to walk in your own ways inside of marriage. Point is, dear beloved single brother or sister, don't compromise. Stay true to the Lord. Find your confidence and hope in the Lord. And full disclosure, in the first service, when I was teaching this, I said, now, if God has not seen to fit to place you in the confines of this horrible institution. <laughs> and it took me about a minute to <laughs> for, for the laughter to die down and to talk about, I know you know my heart. I don't believe in Freud, so that wasn't a Freudian slip. But uh, if God has not seen fit to place you in the confines of this honorable institution. I said it there, so I restated it here again. So beloved dearly beloved love your brother love your spouse finally love your savior love your savior the direct immediate command is don't love money but the direct and even as we look at the rest of verse 5 and verse 6 the command behind that the pro, the positive command behind that negative command is love your savior you see the situation is each of us In this body of death, even as new creatures of Christ, we always have a little bug of greed. Sometimes it can be a big bug of greed. Sometimes God needs to take the spiritual WD-40 and loosen up us a little bit. Look at verse 5. He says, let your character be free from the love of money. Let your character continue, the grammar says, continue to be free from the love of money. The love of money. The insatiable desire for more. In our culture, in our culture, the love of money is the very air that we breathe. We live in an economy that is built in a large degree that encourages us to have what we want and then want what we don't have. It's an economy of covetousness at some level. And our choice is simple. The choice is simple. The dynamic here is the same dynamic as Christ gave in his Sermon on the Mount. He said, Luke sixteen thirteen, No servant can serve two masters, for he'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll hold to one and despise the other. And Jesus finished, you can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and money. The choice is you either love God or you love money. You can't love both. It's the dynamic the Apostle Paul was writing of when he wrote to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians 5.3, and it's actually interesting, he joins together this immorality and greed, which are very often in Scripture joined together. Ephesians 5.3, don't let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. You see, it's because the greedy man can never be happy. He will always want more. And we realize that we live in a culture diseased with discontentment. Uh, That's because, excuse me, the opposite of covetousness is contentment. The opposite of contentment is, of course, discontentment. That's why look at the text at the end of verse 5 Being content with what you have. Being content, understanding the sufficiency of what you have. And beloved, this kind of heart-sufficient contentment is ultimately and really even flowing from the teaching of Jesus I mentioned before. It is ultimately and really a reflection of your love for your Savior. We can think of Paul. Paul told the Philippian church, Philippians 4, 11, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. Now, We understand God even getting back, hearkening back to the spirit of competitiveness that he has placed in each one of us. Understanding that God wants us to do excellence in everything that we do, including our marketplace ministry. But bottom line, when you've done what you can do, be content. Understand life's a gift, it's not a game. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, quote, if you can improve your circumstance in fair and legitimate ways, by all means do so. But if you can't, and if you have to remain in a difficult position, here's the rub, don't be mastered by it. Don't let it get you down. Don't let it control you. Don't let it determine your misery or your joy. Hold on to the supernatural joy, which is part of God's gift of salvation that he gives you in Christ. And then look at the end of verse 5. He says, for this is the reason why. He himself has said... The sovereign creator God of the universe has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. That's his provision. That's his presence in reverse order. That's his presence. I will never desert you. And his provision, I will never forsake you. This is taken from different promises God gave to Moses and gave to Joshua. Deuteronomy 31, verses 6 and 8, for example. He says, to the nation of Israel, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or tremble, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. That's the source of the quote the author of Hebrews gives. And then now in verse 6, here's the outcome. This is what it enables you and me to be able to do, so that we confidently say, so that we courageously say, so that we boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? And the author here quotes from Psalm 118, verse 6, which we read in our scriptural public reading before. Beloved, God is our helper. The same sovereign creator God is our helper. And What can man do? Man can kill this earthly shell, but his power stops there. So when we think that even if someone was to kill this shell, if I'm in Christ, I'm immediately ushered into the presence of God. That is what is the source. The invisible promises of God that we see with eyes of faith is what gives us this courage, this boldness, this confidence. And In Isaiah 51, verse 12, I love this verse. This is God speaking to Israel. He says, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and of the son of man who is made like grass? Beloved, our faith and trust is in the Lord. May you and I run this race of true religion with a life that is marked by loving our brother, loving our spouse, and ultimately, foremost, loving our Savior above all else. The conclusion, when all has been said and heard, is, beloved, fear God and keep his commandments. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the salvation, Lord Jesus, that you purchased for us, that you secured in us thank you for the indwelling holy spirit who enables us to do all these things lord help us to excel yet more in loving our brothers and sisters in christ help the love of you and the good news that we share even as we minister and reach out to those outside the walls of church, this church. Lord, we pray that you would blossom that and bless that. Bless the marriages. Thank you for the godly marriages in this church. Lord, for the single brothers and sisters, bless them and strengthen them and encourage them. Help all of us, Lord, to excel yet more for your glory, for our joy and for our witness to this world. It's in your name Lord Jesus that we pray and that we sing. Amen.